we're really just tapping into the budget here. We're, mm. we're spending $30 on two 16-foot LED strips. Yep. 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 Okay. Watch out, blizzards. <laughs> Scotch. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 143 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth, and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam, and I'm a walking viral vector. I'm Sam, and I'm also sick. And today is March Double Dozen Plus Three 2018. Yep. Right. That's, now, before we get 27, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. Before we get started, we have a warning. Anything could happen on this show. There will be profanity, and then uh, we'll talk about adult themed things mm-hmm. like, yep. like, like theme parks, offices, yes. uh, bars, cubicles. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, those kinds of, those such mortgages, such a general sense of ennui. Ennui. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Mortgage. Mm hmm. All right. Uh, so what happened this past week? Well, Crashlands coming to Switch. Yeah, that's a big thing. For those thing. who couldn't understand what I said, Crashlands is coming <laughs> to the Switch. <laughs> Says the Nintendo Switch. That's Nintendo's new console. For those who somehow are not familiar, but listening to it. It's been around for podcast. a year or so. Um, mm-hmm. And things have been selling like hotcakes on there. So we're really excited to get on the platform and see what we can do. See what we will things. sell like hotcakes. Who knows? Yeah. Is that there's not actually many crafting games on there right now. Yeah. So our yeah. usual competition, the games that everyone's like, oh, you guys are just uh, one of those. Not even on the platform yet. So we're going to see if we get on there before them, because that might be very good for us. Well, so, so yeah, something we noticed was if you if you look at the top performing indie games on the Switch, mm-hmm. every single one of them is in a different genre, mm-hmm. which means is missing. every genre has a winner and there is no crafting genre <laughs> on there yet. Yep. So and then I think almost in all cases, the first one to get there is the winner. It's usually that works. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so hopefully gonna, we get that. Yeah, we're going to put some gas on that. Um, we have a few little wrinkles to get figured out, but we already have it working, actually, on the Switch. It's um, working, but it's not following the rules. Correct. So and this is part of the <laughs> process called cert certification that you have to go through to get your game put onto something like a console. Uh, and essentially what you do is you have to go through this big rule book. It's kind of getting cleared by the FDA. To be able to sell your stuff, right? Yeah, or like when an airplane's about to take off and they just have to check all those boxes. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Except like we have fuel. Or it's kind of like, on board. Mm-hmm. Or it's kind of like when you're baking and then you put things through a sieve or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and then it kind of mm-hmm. like sprinkles out onto, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah ex- no, exactly. Somehow it's exactly it's like It's very that. much mm-hmm. sim- similar. So we got a few hoops to jump through. But yeah, our it's kind of like hula hooping. How did you go there? <laughs> <laughs> but our, yeah, our hula skills have gotten very good over the last couple of years. So- we're hoping it'll be a relatively smooth ride um, to kind of get those things figured out. So I, I don't know I, how I long figure, it's going to be. But. I figure it'll take 10, probably 15 minutes. Yeah. So I, Yes. And then, max. and then we will wait for 10 to 15 months or a year. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we will be getting it out this year sometime, but... Uh, Presumably. Presumably. <laughs> yeah, we have, we, basically we, said, have but, we have two things to wait on. So so one is, uh, so GameMaker announced their you know official support for Switch two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... But it's not actually out yet. It mm-hmm. comes out and it's, I guess, expected to come out this summer. Mm-hmm. So who knows what that means? Because as we all know, plans fail. Plans so are bad. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we're hoping that we might be able to get some, I don't know, special access or something so that if it's basically done and we can just work around some bugs, then they'll let us. Yeah. Who knows? Um, but the, yeah, the, so to wait on that and then the cert process itself, even if we do everything right, Still takes 30 days, um, mm-hmm. you know, in best case scenario. And this is true for any platform or any uh, console, um, which just does kind of raise an interesting challenge that we now have to deal with yeah. uh, for Crashlands and would have to deal with for any game that we're launching on consoles also. 
which is that now it's very hard to Patch. put out an update and make sure that everybody has the update out at the same time. I don't know. I don't know what the follow-on process is once you're already on the platform. I'm pretty sure you go through cert for every update. But is there like a smaller Probably. cert? I would assume that there's something. We yeah. have literally no idea. We've never <laughs> done it before. It's going to be very educated. So, yeah, we'll let you guys know kind of what, you know, what that's like, I guess. I've Whatever we're allowed easy. to say, anyway. Yeah. I've yeah. heard it's been relatively easy on, on Switch, which is... Uh, Thankful. Relatively easy. Relatively. So yeah. And that's, that's something that we've been kind of mulling over is that we've never been on, we've never been on a platform that's this locked down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so typically our experience has been, uh, you know, Steam, Google Play and iOS. We just, we just publish and then at most there's a couple days, you know, yep. uh, before the patch goes out. So we get to be pretty responsive to things, but uh, this is different. And yeah. we don't know what that means and what the implications are for our workflow and everything else. So uh, the first goal is just to get it in there. To get it in there. ASAP so that we can deal with whatever the problems are. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah, the biggest thing that it means is that uh, we have to have a much longer timeline between when we're done with a thing mm-hmm. and when yeah. we can declare yeah. publicly that it's going to come out on a date. Because right. with that cert process, because it takes a long time, if we don't, you know, if we fuck something up and don't get it through that we might discover after 30 days that we have to fix something and then go back through cert again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now it can take months instead of uh, zero time or days. Yeah. To get and this is done. also, I mean, people often complain about day one patches. Yeah. Like this is why those exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause you don't want to go through cert again or you rather you went through cert again and have to wait and then you can't put the new patch out until. Right. Yeah. And when you so. get the game into players' hands, you get a lot of feedback all of a sudden mm-hmm. about things that are broken or, or whatever, and then you can try to, like, get a rush order patch put in to fix those things. Uh, so it's, it definitely adds some weirdness to the process. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, otherwise, we were at GDC last week, mm-hmm. which... Why Adam and I sound like dead people. Yeah, although we should also say, before moving on from the Switch, that I know a bunch of people were bummed out that we didn't tell them that Crash Ones is coming to Switch. We literally could not. We literally could not, and including even our our sound guys. So, mm-hmm. um, so Fat Bard, uh, we just couldn't tell anybody because um, it was all under NDA. So I know that kind of bums some of you out, and we really wanted to tell you, but mm-hmm. we just couldn't do it. Yeah, and the interesting thing about I, I can't remember if that was true with this particular NDA, but oftentimes with NDAs, you'll see that that even within the company, mm-hmm. only the people who are directly involved in the project are allowed to know about it. Yeah. So need to know basis. They try to prevent leaking. Yeah. 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 Because the more people know, the more likely it is that it'll get out. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah. So we, we went to GDC last week. Yep. Um, and we got, so our, our primary goal going there was basically twofold. So Sam and I went there to give a couple talks mm-hmm. to kind of just shake the tree and see what falls out, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Shake the you talk, talk tree. at the tree. Yep. And you just yell at it. See if, if it bears any back. fruits, you know? Yeah, you just go and start barking at the tree. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, so, you bark up out. it, I think. Bark up it. Uh, so we did that, and then we also went to show Levelhead mm-hmm. to see sort of what the response would be um, from our, our business partners and, and platform holders and stuff like that. Yeah, so and that's we don't care about publishers, so we didn't. We're not shopping it around. It's just sort of to... It just says, we have this. Yeah, to show the our, our usual platforms kind of what we're working on and what might be... Basically asking you questions to them as far as what might be good things for us to keep in mind or any proce- problems with the process they might see sort of down the road. So one of the big things with Levelhead, of course, is it's user-generated content, which tends to make everybody very nervous. Um, rightly. Rightly. So <laughs> a, big, a big part of it is, uh, is essentially, I mean, I guess overall, the response is really, really good. Um, in fact... It was probably the best response that we've ever gotten for one of our games. 
which is saying something because Crashlands did very, very well. But actually, in all of our platformer holder meetings uh, up until, you know, after launching the game where it actually did, you know, the numbers, um, the response tended to be kind of tepid. I think because you can't, it's one of the, it's too big of a damn game to be able to really concisely boil down into yeah, like and it, the mechanics build on themselves. We we even had this problem when we demoed Crash Ends at, yeah. at conventions. Does we not had demo to well at all. yeah, we had to build custom uh, abbreviated versions of the game with much faster crafting and much, like pets would hatch instantly, and we just mm-hmm. gave you a bunch of stuff um, to really speed the process up, and it makes it less rewarding to play it because you're not earning or, or acquiring anything through legitimate means. But we still wanted to show the mechanics that usually would take two three hours of gameplay to right. get to right. So the interesting uh, thing with Levelhead is that it's a, it's just a graspable concept. And so we we pared down our pitch uh, for the platform just to, again, make it very, very easy for everybody to understand what the hell we're, we're doing with this game. And so the pitch ended up becoming a precision platformer that lets players become famous level designers. And that seemed to be a thing that really resonated with people really effectively. Um, and then one of the funniest ones is that we had put in on last week before, or the, sorry, the week before we had gone to GC. We were working really hard to polish everything up and get all the UIs done and make it so that you can actually sort of move through the entirety of the game without hitting one of these sort of hideous breakpoints. Placeholders. There previously. And so we really got everything polished up. But one of the biggest things was on Monday, um, we've been kicking around this idea of scaled objects. So as you start drawing, for example, uh, putting down spikes in a level, if you put them in a two by two block, then they actually sort of slurp together and turn into one big spike. Um, we talked about this for a while, but hadn't really put on the priority queue. And then for whatever reason, Seth we were like, well. Do it. We had been kind of noticing that uh, with this, a lot of the screenshots and things that we were sharing, that when we wanted to have large sections of the level that are like covered in spikes or mm-hmm. whatever, or blocks or whatever, it just becomes this kind of noisy shit piece. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just, because it's just the same. It, feel, it just, just feels like a grid. Yeah. It's just the same thing over and over again. And and in, in a game like uh, Crashlands we were able to get around this by the fact that all the tiles for the terrain and stuff flowed together very well and created a contiguous look. So if you ran across a big patch of, you know, of grass or something, it looked fine because it looked like a big, just one big patch yeah, of grass. Instead right? of th- three dozen individual tiles stuck to each other. Right. right. And if you, we do have early screenshots of Crashlands where you could kind of see those and it just looked like shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in general, it's very hard to make a tile, something that adheres to a grid look good. So I think, I think a good example that we made a lot of references to was Bastion, mm-hmm. um, yes. which yeah. if you go back and look at it, it is super grid based. Um, but they, they did such a diversity in what the tiles look like. So they look like they're, some are coming up, some are coming down. There's well, lots of different colors. Scale. And, and that's actually, scaling, yeah. it's actually one of the bigger, bigger points here is that from Just general art direction standpoint, one of the things we failed to be able to capitalize on in Crashlands in particular was the idea of scale. And so what scale allows you to do is draw contrast between say the player as a, as a person in the world and the, the relative size of things uh, in the environment. So Crashlands, everything is constrained to a single grid square. And that's why you'll have, it sometimes just feels kind of weird. Like the world just kind of feels samey and small. Uh, and it's so you're, so you're like, you're going to go chop a tree and it's, it's as exactly as tall yeah, as you are. Yeah, it can never be much taller chop some grass also as tall as yeah. you are. And this is something actually early on that we had, I think probably in the first six, 12 months of development, um, we had come across and, you know, I'd said, I really want to make this like this big thing. And we just couldn't figure out how to hack it because of, some other constraints with how the world dissolves itself outside of the screen. Right. Um, and so this is something that we've gotten working in our, our, uh, our newer games generally. So um, Scuffle Buddies has this larger scale. Scuffle object. Buddies has huge. We, we have a, yeah. So Scuffle Buddies isn't at, at the moment, at least isn't using uh Perlin noise to generate its world. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like pre hand built. Yep. 
um, which means we know we we actually can pre-anticipate how big things are going to be and then, you know, spawn them or despawn them as they need to. Yep. And so we have things in, in Scuffle Buddies already that are like six by six tiles. Oh, they're gigantic. Just which is fucking awesome. huge. But it's great because when you walk up near them, then you can feel, you feel a sense of scale that's just very yeah. different from the rest of, of the environment. So this all points down to this one idea, um, which we've been, I think, a little more keen on recently, which is just, just the idea of contrast and achieving contrast in the games. And so one of the, the favorite moments people have of Crashlands is the embiggening moment where you you uh, basically evolve one of your creatures and the, the thing that happens is just completely out of left field. Dubstep starts playing and screaming. Um, and it's, it's a lot of people's favorite events. As well as the fact that, like, the early boss fights, the Baconweed Fairy is one of the first boss fights. All of a sudden, it's a bullet It's a hell. bullet <laughs> and, and that contrast, that, that contrast makes you feel like the game has gotten, it like, breaks open the game world, where you realize that there's much more here than, than you had anticipated. So, the thing with the scale and the scaling objects, um, it's, it's hilarious because we built this whole editor. The thing, I mean, it works really, really well. It's really slick and has all these cool, like, the path functions, the properties, all this stuff. No one gives a shit about any of it until... Because those are all familiar. Because those are all familiar until you put four spikes next to each other and they go boop and they turn into a bigger thing. And then... And then everybody goes, ooh. And then you put a few more spikes down and then boop, it merges to an even bigger spike yeah. ball. <laughs> and and I think it does that thing. It basically does this this sort of break open of the game world. People are like, what else? What else could I merge does together? That? Yeah, which was funny too because we basically only did exactly that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but the next question people asked was, how, how big, big does it get? Yeah. You know, how big yeah. does it get? And now we have to ask ourselves that question. How big, how big does, does it get? Because <laughs> it may be huge. Yeah, be but fun. it's also yeah. cool because the the merging uh, algorithm also works backwards. Mm-hmm. So if you if you have a, a three by three giant spike ball, and then you're like, I'm gonna drag, I'm gonna like reshape this thing. You can click on it and drag off, and it sort of pulverizes it back out into its component it's parts, yeah. and you can like take one little tiny spike ball out of it. And then it reshapes itself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's always a really fluid cool. system. Yeah. But I think the funny thing about it is that, and and we we had Seth had an inkling that this was, what was going to happen because he showed his wife uh, shortly after getting it done on Monday before GDC. And, and she's like, oh, you know, yeah. really cool. Um, and that was the first time we'd gotten that response. And the thing is, the editor is an extremely robust piece of tech. So the it thing is, feels real good. This is one of those things as a game dev you have to keep your eye on, which is that the things that you think are really cool, probably no one gives a shit about. Um, <laughs> and the things that seem like they're not that big of a deal. Are the big yeah, deal things? Just like, well, yeah, I spent I spent uh, at least a week creating the path editor system and then mm-hmm. updating all the game mechanics to get it so that th- things could move on moving platforms mm-hmm. and everything. And then the merging of the spike balls was like a three hour project, and that's the thing. Everyone and now everybody's about. like, "Oh fuck yeah!" Yeah, yeah so but I think it is true. We take my money. But I think it's true that the, the key to that is that people expect and even demand something like a path editor. Really. Yeah. Like things and should they be demand, moving. Yeah. The things should be moving and they demand that if, they, that if there are platforms that are moving, they know exactly how those should behave because they've played to their platforms. Yep. yep. And so if we don't deliver on that, that gets noticed. If we do deliver, nobody notices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like being a janitor, you know, yep. if you don't yeah. do your job, people will be upset. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's all about, if you do it, nobody says a word. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about delivering just some sort of new, interesting experience. Well, it's actually something we've talked about a lot uh, internally is sort of this realization that the most important part of the dev cycle is actually going to be, it's always just that last 10%. Those it's extra just, little things. Yeah, getting not all the way up. Though. I'm pretty sure no, it's like 80%. Yeah, in terms, <laughs> of, in terms of the actual, uh, you know, overall product. Yeah. So that scaling thing, for example, is this tiny little piece that we just put on top. And it had to have the entire system in place to be able to put that there and have that be like a cool, useful thing. Um, and we could just not because it's not necessarily, it's not like required for the whole thing to work. 
Uh, but it's one of those things that your whole job actually as a dev is to get to that point where the things you add actually feel like additions as opposed to just you hitting the bar. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. But this, this I think makes it even more challenging for people who have that compulsive, um, desire to change projects all the time mm-hmm. where like they'll start working on a project and they'll be like, nah, it's not really, not really hitting what I want it to yeah. do. And then they jump ship and they start a new thing. Um, sort of thinking that the idea is what's going to carry the project forward when really it's what happens in these last bits, like yeah. this last chunk of development. Yeah, it seems like once you're done, I mean, this happened with Crashlands too. Like this, the story came out of literally the end of dev on the whole thing. Yeah. We only decided to do it once we had most of the content in place and once we looked around the market. And so there's a lot of, and the beginning thing I think was actually much later in development as well. So that that just happened on a whim. That just happened because I was basically pulling a prank on Sam by, I replaced the game's music with some Skrillex. Uh And then I was like, hey, embiggen your creature. See what happens. Uh (laughs) So I think, but I think it's an interesting point generally about like creative process stuff, right? Because a lot of people, you'll never make it to, like the, the beginning is always really exciting because it's just exciting to start a project, right? And then actually the end, though, is the most exciting part because that's where you get to put those little bells and whistles on that really make it sort of... And you're right next to thing. being able to show it to people. Yeah, which is really cool. And the middle just sucks a lot. Middle just sucks a lot. <laughs> so that, yeah, the middle grinds. In the middle, you're just solving, you know, like today I'm, I'm ripping out all of the existing save and load functions and replacing them with asynchronous save and load functions. Real like, exciting. Just a black, you know. This is yeah. this is this is why I do this, mm-hmm. fellas. You know, yeah, <laughs> uh, yep. yeah. So otherwise, one other cool thing that kind of came out of it is, and there's a big advantage to getting your your game out there and getting people talking about it is that people talk about it mm-hmm. and you get to learn what their what their demands are. We get to see who's interested. Who's basically. interested? Yeah. And one of the things that we had kind of an inkling of, but didn't really fully absorb was that the speedrunning community mm-hmm. is going to be super into this. Um, so it got posted over to the, there's like a speedrunners subreddit community. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really into Mario Maker. Uh, and so Levelhead is kind of a natural next step for that group. Mm-hmm. And so we we kind of, one of them posted and they said, here here's a list of demands. You know, as a speedrunner, here are the things that I've been wanting out of all these existing games that I just haven't gotten. Mm-hmm. So things like ghosting, where whoever has the top score, uh, you can race their mm-hmm. ghost or as like a, as a top little, couple of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, and then was, as we were thinking about it, we're like you know, if we get the ghosting in, that actually allows us to do something like what Super Meat Boy does, where your bodies, you know, go running and dying mm-hmm. everywhere and stuff like that, which is hilarious. Yeah. So by mm-hmm. basically by solving one problem, we can also sort of adapt that solution to another. Well, it's also super neat though, because that ghosting has been on the list actually since early in dev, we're like, I think we want this in here, but you have no idea of relative importance of these things. And so whenever you see a, re- a response come in where people are like, oh, that would be important, then we get to bump it up. Yeah, right. because it was at the bottom of the list. Really. It's been at the bottom of the list for a long time, yeah. yeah. And then we saw it, we're like, okay, we'll yep. just do that next. So, yeah, level, I mean, it was really interesting seeing it. And we also, we put together a little, uh, clipped together a little uh, MPEG video that we put on Twitter, uh, which also did very well, got passed, passed all over the place. We've talked a lot about how Twitter, we basically only use for one-on-one communication and then uh, videos or gameplay snippets. Yep. Um, so that one did very well and got a really good response too, which is always sort of a nice thing going into something like GDC. And I think overall, it seems like the response has been just way more positive than I think any of us had anticipated, which is kind of nice. Um, Especially compared to the, we posted a video of the game maybe a month ago. Uh-huh. 
And the response was kind of medium, and except for one person who's like, "This looks like shit." Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. thanks, internet. We pointed out we're like, "It is, it is super alpha. early alpha." Like, this is yeah. We, this is before any kind of re- legitimate art pass, mm-hmm. before the scaling and and all kinds of other yeah. stuff. Everything was play all kinds of placeholder UI elements. To be yeah. fair, it kind of did. It didn't look awesome. <laughs> it didn't look good. But one thing, one of the things we talk about is when you're going to start talking about your game, you should have the art to a point where it looks good enough that people might be excited about the art because yeah. it's actually the only thing they can understand. Early yeah. On. Games yeah. are experienced good, which means you can't actually know what the fuck it is until you play it. So all you're judging it on is what it looks like. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think importantly with that video that we showed, we didn't show the editor at all. So no. we, so we didn't, so there was no indication to the uninformed uh, passerby mm-hmm. that, Hey, this is a game where you build your own levels. Instead. Uh, I think it was just, it was this insanely complicated it's super just, chaotic yeah. level where you're like riding a spring that's bouncing on treadmills over a series of fire cannons mm-hmm. or something like that. So it was just, it was just a madness, lot yeah. a lot happening with unfinished art. So yeah. I, I understand. I get it. It's a thing. Yeah. But yeah. So our, our next, uh, this kind of nicely set us up for getting back and sort of getting, as soon as we you know, finished being completely diseased, um, getting fully back into the swing of things and gave us a nice set of priorities. So our next biggest priority, um, or sort of two things going on, is to get Rumpus up and running, mm-hmm. um, which involves actually getting the new website put up. Yep. So we'll be going into Alpha for that sometime in the next little while, short while, hopefully. Um, and then with Levelhead is actually finishing out a f- the suite of features that that we think is sort of required to get a, I guess, what a you good round of f- feedback, a good round of game game feedback, though. Gameplay, so yeah, yeah and we, we've talked about this before, but there's. There's a bunch of other stuff that we're we're aiming to do with Levelhead as far as some story things and and how the tech tree works and some other things that will we just think they're we basically just know that they're gonna how they're gonna work and that they will work in the way that we anticipate and so we're not necessarily gonna worry about those for the alpha so it'll be sort of more like a gameplay test rather than a full game test yeah that makes sense. and and the reason that we're so we're not even gonna start implementing those until after the alpha mm-hmm. basically the reason being if you have something in there. That's people judge broken it. or unfinished, uh, then that's where people's attention will be fixated mm-hmm. on that broken piece. And that's going to sort of contaminate the rest of their testing experience. So we want good feedback about the things that we think are in a good state mm-hmm. to see how wrong we are about that. Yeah. Right. Another benefit that gives us is then we can actually start talking about it and uh, potentially shipping some, doing the alpha test and then shipping some builds out to various platforms and other things to start kind of getting that conversation going about where this game might be going in the future. Yeah. So, um, so then otherwise one other cool thing happened at the end of GDC. Um, so Jeff Kaplan mm-hmm. from who's vice president of blizzard. He's a director of overwatch. He's director of overwatch. And then he's some high, he's some high up feller in blizzard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Sam had met him at dice and Jeff said, Hey, come on down to, uh, the blizzard office and I'll show you around. Mm-hmm. So we we're like, oh fuck, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so we set that up, uh, and we so we swung down there uh, after GDC ended. Mm-hmm. So we kind of we flew down in the morning, and then we hung out with uh, Jeff for the afternoon, and mm-hmm. then flew back to St. Louis late at night. And so we got to kind of take a tour of their of their campus and stuff, and just kind of see like, what is it like? Because it's something that we've been. Mm-hmm we've been doing is, is going to other studios and seeing what their space is like, what their philosophies are like, what their work culture yeah. is like. So, uh, yeah. The other groups we visited are, uh, Ironhide down mm-hmm. in Uruguay, um, which has like a super rad office space, just covered in art and all sorts of cool stuff. 
and then uh, Supergiant HQ as well. And the big question, because of course we're looking at our next move is to get an actual space for ourselves because we are still in a basement. Yeah. And so we're trying to find inspiration of what are people doing that's good? And what are they doing that they realize they should not have done? Yeah. Like the big one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mainly sort of avoiding mistakes sort of thing. So it was really that's, a, that's a, I mean, yeah. Building out an office space is a big undertaking. Huge investment. You got to think about it a lot. And it was, and it's fairly permanent in the yeah. sense that it's real hard to change it after you do it. Yeah. So, so it was really fun because uh, we got lunch with Jeff and then, and then he showed us around um, and we we're sort of just peppering with questions about, you know, like, why are you guys doing all these things. Blizzard has all these cool statues, statues, huge statues just yeah, all over the which place. Which they, they typically build statues for Blizz, or they, they commission somebody to build statues mm-hmm. um, for BlizzCon, mm-hmm. which is their yearly convention. And so they'll take the characters from their games and have these cool statues with like lights inside I mean, it's of It's almost them. like being in a, like a pantheon, you know? Yeah. And these huge avatars of, of all the characters around. Uh, and so we were talking about like, what's that? Why? Why? Why exactly? Why? Um, <laughs> and... I think we got some really good notes about, so I think Blizzard does an extremely good job of just sort of celebrating both their, their history and also the fact that their games do have a huge impact. And the thing is, we've talked about this before, you know, when you launch a game, like you just click a button, you don't, that's it. Even There's, Blizzard. Even Blizzard. When like, they launch a game, just click somebody a just hits a button at some point. Mm-hmm. And yep. so <laughs> there's, there's no built in feeling. It's not like, you know, it's not like winning a marathon where you're crossing a finish line and people are screaming. Um, there's not a built in feeling of gravity to, the whole situation. And so what they, very do, anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah, what they do is they do this really good job of sort of uh, with these physical items of sort of uh, like building these, these artifacts that hold a lot of that gravity and that weight of the work that everybody's doing. Uh, so essentially it, it allows people to, I guess it sort of, it makes the work just feel more meaningful. It's like you walk in and there's this pantheon, there's like a huge bronze orc statue in the center of their HQ, um, which just looks amazing. And it's got their sort of studios design pillars around it baked into stone yeah. in the ground. And they do stuff like when they launch a game, they erect a flagpole mm-hmm. around the, like in the center of campus where the orc statue is. There's a lot of kind of land around it. And then they put up a flagpole and then the dev team who may, who launched the game gets to, they hoist get to it. hoist the flag up yeah. with the, with the games, you know, name on it and logo mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah. And so we, we just took a lot of inspiration from them as far as how they're doing a good job of celebrating this stuff because, you know, all of us are still, Maybe I'm the only one still working on a laptop. You're working on one too. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you don't have a big feeling of permanence. Like you come in the office and just sort of like jack in in the morning. Um, we don't have much stuff in terms of celebrating the fact that we've been successful as yeah, a company. We have, we have bare minimum desks. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have any. We have like a poster. Yeah. Our, our paraphernalia is basically posters and stickers. Yeah. And then yeah. mugs that have nothing to do with our games. Right. Yeah, we have but a few pieces of uh, fan art. We have that uh, Perler. Someone made a big, cool, like, quadrupus thing out of Bead, the perler yeah. beads, which is hanging up. But that's, like, it. So we just, we don't have much going on in terms of actually bringing the weight of our accomplishments into the physical realm, because all of them are digital. Yeah. So we're looking at, we're not sure exactly what we're going to do yet, but we're looking at some some ways to kind of do better about celebrating that stuff in-house so that when we, you know, when we come, literally in-house, I guess, in this case, but when we come yeah. <laughs> into the office that it just feels like yeah. you're walking, yeah, like, like you're, you're walking doing into something important. Yeah. So that's, I mean, Blizzard just nails it hundred percent. Yeah, and, and of course, a big part of that is just where they are relative to where we are in terms of having resources, spending cash. <laughs> well, yeah. Some would say they are slightly more successful than us. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's debatable, but, <laughs> but it is also a matter of priorities because, you know, they, they have 
relative to us infinite money, but they also spend relative to us relative infinite, to us, infinite money. money. Right? Right. So it's not just that they have more, it's that they have made it a priority to yeah. dress up their offices and uh, and provide all kinds of swag for their employees. I don't know if they if employees buy it or not, but but what we noticed too is that there's just stuff everywhere. Like mm-hmm. people, everybody we saw was wearing, you know, a, some some sort of a shirt, shirt or something. Yeah. Um, and whether it's provided or not, just by the company, it's just, it's there. It's very present and visible. Um, and so they just decided to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we can do the same thing on a smaller scale, proportional to our <laughs> level of success, right. you know, uh, if we just decide that, that there's some value there. And I think that was, to me, the big lesson was that that stuff is important. It's not one of those right. uh, sort of things that you get to do once you have infinite money. It's a thing that you should do as soon once as you can afford it and yeah. once you can. And, and then, you know, at your scale. So, right. you know, so not, don't have 12 foot tall statues, but maybe get, you know, a three inch figure, you know? Yeah. 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 Or maybe, so we're dropping, we're really, we're really just tapping into the budget here. We're, mm-hmm. we're spending $30 on Two 16 foot LED strips. Yep. 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 Okay. Watch out, Blizzard. <laughs> Good old uh, we are coming for you. Why contest. two? Because then we can have one of them be kind of yellow, one of them be kind of fuchsia, mm-hmm. you know, and we can line the, the room where we're working. Mm-hmm. Boom. Yep. Amazing. Now it looks cool. Now it's super, super cool. My favorite ones we got back yesterday, and uh, Seth had put up our, we have one seven foot tall poster thing of Crashlands that yep. we use at conventions. And Seth had put it up like between he and I's desk. It's the, only, was, it's the only spot. That it's the only spot it, that it could fit. The problem is, it's also like the whiteboard area that Seth and I use because all the white the walls are just covered in whiteboard paint. Yeah. And so, both looked at it and he was like, "Is this good here?" And I was like, "No." And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, no, fuck this." I took it back down. <laughs> so, but a big part of this also is we're trying to figure out and really just nail down exactly what those principles are that our studio operates by. Because you can't, you, know, you can't get an orc statue with a bunch of cool stone principles until you have some principles. And also, you can't get an orc statue and then put it in front of your whiteboard. That's you true. Because you yeah. got to use the whiteboard. Yeah, so right gonna... now, our space is, some would say, constrained. <laughs> <laughs> some would uh, say. So, yeah, I mean, but it's, it's just something for us to be thinking about. And honestly, until, like, basically, Levelhead will have to come out and do quite well Yeah, uh, for us to even start making plans to do, you know, mm-hmm. to put together an, an office and build out or something. But it's something to be thinking about always mm-hmm. thinking about yep. what, what to do. Cause your space affects you tremendously. So it does. And of course, PC gamers know this led lights make everything, make more everything awesome. faster, mm-hmm. better, more awesome. They add weight to you every situation. It. Yep. I feel like weddings should have more led strips. They should. Uh, yep. Cause that's a big, important event. Mm-hmm. Just fill your fill your life with LED strips. All right. Uh, also, one last bit of news before we get on to questions. Final Space. Yes. So there's a new cartoon uh, from Olin Rogers. And Olin Rogers is a YouTuber who started in a, a, tr- a sketch comedy trio called Balloon Shop mm-hmm. back in 2006 or seven or He's something. He's like one of, the, one of the earliest YouTubers, but never had a huge... Breakout success, which is interesting. Yeah. Like he never, he doesn't have like a billion subscribers or anything like that. He's got a very particular brand of humor that all of us really enjoy, uh, which is lots of screaming, lots of screaming and really weird word combinations of things. So yes, dipping your toes in my mind butter, for example, is a quote from from his thing. (laughs) Um, And there's, he has a few phenomenal videos that I would suggest watching. One is called the lion's blaze, which is about gaming. Yeah. I think everybody would enjoy. And then, uh, the other is called Ghost in the Stalls, 
which is a story. It's just a story that he tells, which is incredible. But the guy's got this goofy voice uh, and he, he does all these weird portmanteaus, just weird word combinations. And he pitched this cartoon called Final Space. I managed to get it on TBS. Conan O'Brien saw it. Apparently signed on as the executive producer. And then they got like David Tennant, the guy who's the doc- doctor. Doctor who. who um, he's one of the voice actors for it. There's like there's a star-studded he cast. He plays the villain. Yeah. yeah. There's a star-studded <laughs> cast somehow. And uh, it Ron came out. Perlman. Yeah, <laughs> all sorts of crazy. Stuff. And so you know, we're over here and we're just sort of cheering on Olin, our guy. He's sort of, the, he's just the, he's kind of the perpetual underdog. Yeah, he's very lovable. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I highly recommend checking out his videos, but then also checking out his Final Space. I watched it uh, a couple days ago, bought on YouTube for like 15 bucks by the series. And hilarious. It's an adult cartoon. So there's a lot of swearing, um, some occasional like, grotesque violence. There's definitely violence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but some of it is hysterical and I haven't laughed like I, I really like in watching uh, Adventure Time, so it has kind of a similar feel to it. But then it tips into this, you know, adult humor stuff on occasion. Uh, it's just very ridiculous, and I think there's at least one time per episode where I was laughing uncontrollably. So like they do a good job of sort of hitting the mark with a good consistency. So I highly recommend it. Go support our boy Olin. Doing his thing. Yeah, and if if history is any indication, what's going to happen with the series is it's going to start in a very lighthearted and comedic mm-hmm. way. And it's going to end with everybody weeping yep. would be my. It sort of is his recipe whenever he does yeah. his longer form. Disarm, it disarms you with weird ass dialogue and jokes. And then you start to like the characters and then you're sad. <laughs> <laughs> Catch feelings. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I did watch the most recent episode. It definitely started starting to go down. Yeah. Starting to go down. So. <laughs> uh, all right. So, yeah, check that out. Uh, all right. Let's get on some questions. These questions come from our listeners over at podcast.bscotch.net. So if you'd like to get your question on a future episode, get over there and then just do stuff. Mm-hmm. First question comes from Dombrowski. Is taking the trip to GDC worth it? Please explain why or why not. Love the cast. Best of luck on the Crashland Switch launch. Thanks, buddy. Um, GDC trip worthiness. It what depends, do you think? It depends ah. on why you're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means you need to know why you're going before you, you know, do it. Uh, so for us, the first trip was worth it because we didn't know what it was for. We didn't know why we were going. And we needed to, to go once out. to figure out what this thing was all about. Mm-hmm. And then we learned that. And then we learned that. Uh, we also learned that nobody knew who we were or gave a shit about mm-hmm. us, et cetera. So it was simultaneously educational and very deflating. This was our sixth trip. This one yeah, was, this one. yeah. And my fourth or fifth, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, it's very humbling the first time you go. Yeah. Well, and, and actually it it will, for most people, it will be humbling every time you go, right? Because uh, success in the industry is very difficult. Uh, most of the people who attend GDC are trying to figure out like some path into the games industry. Uh, and so each time they go, there's not really, there's not going to necessarily be sort of a sense that they have progressed personally, right? Uh, and so you kind of see the world around you changing. On the other hand, since most people are in the same boat, uh, you kind of get that camaraderie where kind of everyone's trying to figure it out, everyone's struggling, and you can kind of learn from what people are doing. So I think for for me anyway, my first two were really, my first one in particular was really good because I went to a lot of talks, got a sense of who people were in the industry, got a sense of the kind of things that people thought were important because, because mm-hmm. uh, you know, GDC as an institution, you know, it's a company, right? Uh, and they curate talks based on what they think they're... They got to sell tickets. Yeah, they're selling tickets, right? Yeah. So they, they curate their talks based on what they think the game developer community wants to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, so based on just the talks that are available, when you go see, you just get to get a sense of that. They also give talks preferentially to people who they think are important. Right. Uh, so you, then you also get a sense of who the sort of broader community thinks is important in the industry. Uh, so for me, like as a first visit, it was a great way just kind of get a, get a sense of the thing of the industry. Uh, after that, uh, things were kind of hit or miss depending on mm-hmm. what we were going for. Um, cause after, cause then the second time we went, we were trying to show off crash lands and we're trying to get people excited about what we were doing. And it was very hard cause, cause the game frankly wasn't in a good enough state to get anybody excited. Plus it's a hard demo. And it's a hard demo, even so when it isn't a good enough. It's the sort of thing where like you're going to tell people about it and they're like, I mean, cool, but I've got three hours to enjoy this. Yep. Yeah. So. Well, and I think once you get over the initial sort of surge of passion and enthusiasm from your first GDC, yep. you know, after you, once you start to see the pattern, which is basically a lot of the talks, like a substantial proportion of the talks are meant to sell the dream. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, so a lot of them or, or to kind of, um, a lot of them are talks about about passion, about failure, mm-hmm. um, about you know perseverance. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually this is a bone that we have to pick with the GDC talk structure because uh, in my case, I've done two business talks in the last two years that are supposed to be for independent studios for indies. They're never put in the indie track, right? Because the indie track is actually not about business right it's about and selling it's, the dream and that's a really important thing to understand is if you're just getting the indie summit pass you're you tend to just see you see those postmortems about about sort of how big names did a particular thing or launched a particular game but you won't actually get you don't tend to get actual nuts and bolts advice about okay i'm an indie studio how the fuck do i market this thing that i made yeah um, what i think for you gotta pony up the extra like thousand dollars to go to the business track for right well right? i think the, the <laughs> sort of the idea is that the that indie at gdc um means trying to figure out your way. It doesn't, it doesn't actually mean I've got an independent business and, Correct. and I need to figure out how to sell my game and whatever. It really just means like the, all those people who are in the trenches who haven't made it yet and are trying to figure out how, uh, which is of course not what it really means, but that's kind of, that's right. kind of the way that, that the talks get uh, relegated mm-hmm. in right. at GDC. Yeah. This is reflecting like, you know, the cost of the indie pass. We, we, we typically go on an indie pass mm-hmm. um, except for the past couple of years. Uh, because it's the cheapest pass mm-hmm. that gets you access to sort of your people, you know, like all the people are the, who you think are your people. Um, everybody kind of struggling together. Uh, so yeah, so I, I don't know. I think, I think the main problem with GDC, uh, is really just people don't know why they go. They just think that they should. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they do, and then they get there. And then the question is, you know, now what? And yeah. so the thing that you're probably going to do is go to a lot of talks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're going to talks to learn something, you're going to be disappointed because yes. depends on your pass. It depends and on your pass. Enormously. <laughs> but it also, just, it also, you don't, you don't really get to learn anything because you will get inspired. You'll get inspired, which is, um, I mean, it's not, it's not worth nothing. No, no, it's, no, definitely, it's definitely not worth nothing. Yeah. But, but if you're going to learn, uh, you're going to think that you learned something and actually will not have. And I think that this is an important problem that is propagated by things like GDC is that, Talks are chosen because they're supposed to have takeaways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're supposed to have very clear, well-defined takeaways that uh, you as a, as a listener are supposed to walk away with like, okay, cool, I've learned something important, right? Um, but the fact is that you know, everybody's experience is so different. Launching games is, a, is a, something that nobody, if anybody had the recipe for, that this, you know, this, this wouldn't even exist as a thing that we all go to and try mm-hmm. to figure out how the hell to do things together. Uh, so actually nobody knows how to, how to be successful. Nobody knows why they were or were not successful. So the takeaways that you walk away with aren't actually lessons for you. Right. They're sort of demonstrations of what somebody else think is, thinks mm-hmm. is important. And so that's why I say it's a really good experience if you're trying to figure out what people think is important. 
but not necessarily if you're trying to learn how to do something. Yeah, you, yeah. you, can, you can't take somebody else's experience wholesale and just replicate yeah, that. Yeah. And I think there's also that that kind of uh, goofy rule that, you know, if you're hearing about something at GDC, it's at least two years old. Yeah. Probably three, because somebody had to have the idea, spend a year or two developing that mm-hmm. game or whatever, launch it, then it has to get noticed and get successful, and then that person has to submit a GDC talk. Yeah. In October, six months before the next GDC, right? Yep. And so timing-wise, it's likely that what you're hearing about is three years old. So, you know, I'm, I I submitted a talk. The talk that I gave was called Crashlands is Designed by Chaos. It wasn't actually supposed to be about Crashlands originally. Mm-hmm. It was just it was just called Designed by Chaos. Um, and the feedback I got uh, from the, the selection committee was basically, you got to talk about Crashlands. You, you can't just talk about design generally right because you gotta you gotta get people in there by using your flagship game right and i'm sitting here thinking our game is two years old now game's old as the hill we started developing it four years ago Mm -hmm. so i got some old ass some old ass news (laughs) because i want to talk about our up-to-date ideas of how to design games not what we thought was true four years ago well i do think there's one there's one interesting thing that a lot of people don't quite take advantage of uh when they're at gc and so Part of it is that so when your first time you're going, it's just sort of bamboozling. There's just there's so much stuff going on. You're going to go to talks and, and meet people. Um, your bams are getting boozled. Yeah. All day. And uh, 24-70. One of the reasons why I think it's continued to be a more valuable experience for us, and it should be. I think if you're doing it right, it should be more valuable over time. Every time you go, this is by far our best time that we've gone, is because we put a really big effort on the networking aspect. And not just randomly, but with very particular people. So last year we tried to network randomly. It was dumb. It totally didn't pan out. Mm-hmm. Most yep. people didn't even respond to us. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, instead this year what we did was we just said, okay, if anybody wants to meet with us, they'll let us know. And we're not going to reach out unless there's, we have basically these like six or seven partners who are generally we, platform people. we need to talk to. Yeah. Engine people, whatever else, who are just sort of core to our business, who we absolutely need to talk to. And then beyond that, whatever, you know, we'll let people come to us. It was much more relaxed this year. And and we this time we said, we're going to say no a lot. Yeah. So if somebody's coming from an ad company, if somebody's got an SDK. Not interested. Whatever it is. Yeah, we're just not going to yeah. do and it. And so uh, we basically didn't entertain any of those this year and instead just focused on meeting other devs who had reached out to us um, either through just through Twitter while we were at the show or via email some weeks before. And I think it overall was just a much better show for us, a much more relaxed um and then on top of that, I think it sort of showed that the the talks we've given in the past and then the work that we've done at GDC in the past of just of actually doing that more random networking structure where you come in and, and there should be at least, you know, like three to five targets who you're just trying to actually get some time with, whether that's a, a studio who you admire and you want to go talk to one of their people or if it's a platform holder or whatever else. And then beyond that, you just, you know, anytime you have time between the talks, don't spend it just like noodling around on your phone, like go talk to other people who were there. Because yeah, we spent a lot of time just sitting at tables and then talking to whoever yeah, was that's there. primarily what we do. And that's primarily what we did the last couple of years, in fact. Um, yeah, but there, I mean, there were a number of times where I'd sit down at a table with somebody and they would not look up from their phone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, I mean, it's a clear message of like, don't talk to me, don't engage, yeah. right? So I wouldn't, but I wouldn't know if that person was simultaneously tweeting about how hard it is to meet people. Well, at this, GDC. Is, so this, is, this is one of the crazy things. You see tons of people on their phones. And if you actually look at the GDC hashtag on Twitter, a, a high number, a high percentage of the overall tweets going out are people tweeting about how hard it is, how to, hard it is to talk to people at GDC. Like, just um, quit tweeting. Just put yeah, your dang think, phone down. I think, well, I think we, we were talking about this a little bit one of the nights because we had, had a similar experience where we sat down and 
there's a whole table full of people and everyone's just on their phones. At no point did anybody, you know, want to chat essentially. Um, and it was this question of, are people confusing the fact that it is just hard to socialize, period. It's just a hard thing for any human to do with the idea that they have like, they have a harder time than other people do socializing. Yeah. People seem, seem to think, at least according to Twitter, mm-hmm. that they're unique and finding it awkward and difficult to say hello yes. to a rando. It is it's just it sucks for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> including us, uh, including people who, who maybe don't even oftentimes need to make an introduction because they are known, you know, um, it's still just not necessarily a fun thing. You never know who the person is. You never know if they're going to be fun or, or from or, an ad company or from an ad company, in which case <laughs> then you got to figure out how to, how to decouple yeah, from that. Shape shifting all the time. You can never <laughs> tell. Uh, so I, I, I just had this weird feeling where I was like, I wonder if people are sort of misreading where they fit in the whole thing, which is everyone has a hard time talking to people. Yeah. That's it. Even if you seem like you're really good at it, it's still just like a pain in the ass and it's weird and awkward to go talk to yeah. people. Um, but if you're go if you pay to go to GDC, you should absolutely be trying to talk to people almost the entire time that you're at the show. There's just there's just no excuse, I think, for for not unless you're just like, hey, I just need to work on some stuff, or maybe I do need right. to send some tweets out to get in touch with the person I'm trying to meet with. But um, yeah, I think I've I've always been kind of shocked by it, but I think people don't tend to take advantage of the fact that there's just tons of people there who are all working on game stuff, and you really should just be you're talking surrounded by them. Yeah, just and be talking like the whole time. <laughs> and it's way better than like talking with your face is way better than Twitter. And that was one of our experiences early on is that we would send these tweets out and be like, hey, you know, we're at blah. Uh, if anybody wants to meet up, no one show up. No one say anything. Sometimes, been, sometimes we would tweet people directly. Hey, you want to come do this? Do you want to come? Because they were there, they're mm-hmm. tweeting, talking about like, oh, nobody wants to meet with yep. me. And we'd be like, we'll meet with you. And then just nervous. nervous. <laughs> so it just kind of, that kind of sucks, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's the whole thing Adam was getting at. Like, it's a very humbling experience. It always is. Even, I mean, there's some cases this year where like reach out to people, don't get anything or have an experience with them and just not, not really get any traction. So yeah, I think it, it sort of has changed over the years from early on being like, what the fuck is even happening in the industry to, okay, we need to grow our network and meet with as many people as possible to now I think a much more comfortable sort of, I feel like we understand what it's for and how we are supposed to operate once we arrive. But the result is that it's like a sprint for us. Yeah, so just the, meeting after meeting. Yeah, meeting, we, we meeting. Were talking to people nonstop. Almost the, like Adam lost his voice by the like second well, day. I mean, it was from diseases, though. It was oh, a, yeah. It was a combo of talking a lot plus diseases. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that, I mean, I, I uh, starting last GDC, I, I stopped drinking at GDC, period. Yeah, it's a good move. Because two GDCs ago, I did drink, stayed up late, you know, which, which if I'm staying up till midnight at GDC, that's like staying up till 2 a.m. because we're from two time zones mm-hmm. over so that's much later than normal had several drinks uh go to bed wake up the next morning all of a sudden i'm very cold mm. and then i'm sweating and then it turns out i had the flu mm-hmm. so uh you know you, you tend to do things that weaken your immune system all at once yeah. you're shaking lots of hands staying up surrounded late. by people staying up late drinking you know whatever it's just a bad move mm-hmm. uh so i still managed like i went and met with yo-yo games with the flu. I was like, sorry guys, I'm probably, <laughs> probably spreading this, but I got to be at this meeting. Uh, yeah. So it's something to always be really careful of too. Yeah. Well, we've gotten a little smarter about that. We don't actually go to the parties at GC. We just do our social. We go to the thing. ones that are early mm-hmm. and then have zero or one drinks and then leave. chat with people for an hour and go home. So we were, we were in bed, I think by 10 or 10 30 every night. We had one late night on Monday. I think. That's a mistake. It was a mistake. I didn't. It was a good time. It was a very good time. 
You notice that I didn't have the late night on Monday. That's true. Also the I'm the only one who didn't get sick. Adam and Sam are loading up on zinc and like taking all kinds of vitamins in, in for weeks in advance. And they're like, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be not going to be sick. And I just went to bed on time and I was mm-hmm. fine. I didn't do any of that other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm still less sick than I normally have gotten. That's so there you go. So it's, a, you know, it's I kind of, I hit somewhere in the middle, I yeah. think, uh, but, and that's the other thing to remember, too, is that uh, when it comes to the, the question of whether GDC is worth it, uh, it is enormously costly. Yes. Uh, not just exactly financially, but also on your time, because you're almost definitely going to get sick. Like, nearly everybody mm-hmm. does. And on your brains. Yeah. Yeah. Because coming back is, I mean, it's hard. Yeah. Because it's also the, the week leading up to GDC, we're, we're going crazy trying to get our build ready yep. to show to people and stuff. So it's, it's a very intense week. Probably one of our most productive weeks of the year. Like yeah, it's but, it, really but depending fast. on how you treat it, it could not be. Because yes, if you're right. trying to, you know, get, if you're trying to shore up a bunch of stuff that isn't really how you want it anyway, but just to make it, you know, look good enough that you can right. show it or whatever, uh, then you're essentially wasting that. Or like so build a custom demo. demo like we did with Crash. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and, and there's pros and cons, right? Because if you show that to a, a publisher or a platform, platform holder who then gets really into it and now is behind it, well, then that was actually, everything is now worth it. Right. But if nobody gets behind it now, now you had taken a gamble and you lost. That's what it always is. Every time, yeah, it's just a gamble, and so it's a it's a very expensive gamble. Um, and again, it's going to knock out. Uh, we've we've gotten good enough at it that it basically just knocks out a week now. Um, yeah. which is you know the week of GDC. Actually, I guess probably two weeks because yeah. week of GDC and then recovery from diseases. Everyone's and messed up. Yeah, afterward. Uh, so you, you just have to realize that you get if you actually take huge effort to get a lot out of the experience, then it can be worth even the lost time and the high cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't, then it's absolutely not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my bet is it's going to take a few more, well, maybe, maybe even just this whole week for us to kind of ramp back up to full production mode. Yeah. Cause there's like, there's the sickness, there's the time zone change. There's the, the sort of general burnout of having been sprinting for two weeks straight, you yeah. know? Yeah. It's it's the five hour energy thing, you know. You're mm-hmm. not just adding you're that borrowing energy. from tomorrow. You're borrowing it from the future, right? Yeah. This weekend, we all just basically slept. I slept for 24 of the 40. <laughs> I just slept a lot. I, I avoided. I tried to avoid sleeping because I get onto onto a normal schedule, but I, I was just tired as fuck. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I'm still it's it's tired one of the, it's one of those like when you're that tired. This is why sleep matters too, because if you're tired, all of your good habits just oh, they're just, just fucking dissolve. Yep. yep. So. Uh, speaking of good habits, next question comes from mm. Dr. Dino, which is pretty yeah. awesome. Pretty good. Uh, hey, brothers, what do you say to those that think self-help slash productivity slash habit formation books are a bunch of hogwash? Also, I get my games industry news from your podcasts. Also, can't wait for your game jam. Also, Man. love y'all. Bye. <laughs> a lot of comments appended on this question. Many things yeah. happened. Uh, I would actually say to, to the first question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's only one question. <laughs> uh, then for that question, I would say that's largely correct. Yes. Uh, most self-help books in particular are absolute hogwash. Uh, and lots of things sort of does things that advertise themselves as self-help books in particular, um, because they're super hand wavy. They don't, they don't actually have a lot of practical advice. They mostly try to sort of, again, just use hand waviness to, to yes, provide but, ideas for things. But, they serve one really important purpose. So uh, one of the most effective things that somebody can do for weight loss is keep a food journal. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it makes you think about what you're doing, right? Whereas normally something it's your, your habits are are absent minded things that you do automatically and you do them without thinking. And they, they're, they happen by triggers, right? 
And so I think the role of something like a self-help book is it's an ex- like, why are they so long when they can typically be summed up in a sentence, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just so that for eight hours while you're reading that book, you're just exposing yourself to the idea of like, think about this, think about this, mm-hmm. think about this. Uh, so that maybe over time, if you read five or six books about, I don't know, being tidy or something, <laughs> right. um, then... Well, like I wouldn't it's, call it's just a, like, it's just a little bit of a nudge, but again, it depends on the thing. So I'm not, I'm not talking about like, so like a book that says being tidy is good for you and then gives you some tips on how to do it. Like that's a net win, you know, yeah. we're getting things done. Like, yeah, sure. The middle of the book is a whole bunch of stuff about using paper as if we still are from 15 years ago. Right? I know who, <laughs> who paper. uses paper, <laughs> uh, but you know, the, the message of the book is clear and, ob- and, and then easy to understand. And the, and the tips and tricks are super useful. And I, and I still make use of them today, even though I read that book nearly 10 years ago. Uh, so yeah, so th- those, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that as a, as a field, like there's just nothing good there. And in yeah. fact, I've gotten a lot of good out of, out of a lot of these books. Uh, I'm talking about things that are the things that people think of when they think of self-help, like the secret, yeah. which is a net uh, negative. That is okay. a net fucking neg- Like if you read that and believe anything in that book, your life is worse now. Cause you're not going to do things. Cause you're not going to do things <laughs> because you believe the universe owes you shit, which mm-hmm. is just fucking wacky. Right. So there are a lot of, you know, self Label self help so about the uh, are the, actually bad the snake oil version. So the yeah. secret should just be called survivorship bias. Exactly, it's real. Yeah, or or uh, <laughs> or it's not even survivorship bias. It's uh, it's just the the cognitive bias towards noticing things once you start to think about it. Right, because the whole gist of the book is well, if you true, yeah. if you believe that good things will happen, they will happen. Right, but what it actually it happens is. You just look for good things and then notice them now. Right? It's like right. a gratitude practice. Yeah, it's a gratitude practice. But now it's disguised as this like, you know, mystical. But I think importantly, bullshit. if there's any examples in that book of of people who this happened to, you know, that's also the survivorship, yeah, survivorship. bias yep. problem where it's like, yep. they're not going to talk about the thousand people who it didn't happen to. Here's a question. Isn't every book just a self-help book? Yeah, if you're properly are. That's exactly paying attention correct. to Every life. book should be. Yeah. I think this is the thing. So I read... So I read a lot of books. My my goal this year is actually to not read. So I've been switching it out for a drawing habit, which has been interesting. But um, I haven't read basically anything this year. A little bit of Walden, which is fun. But <laughs> the interesting thing is that all the books, I mean, even the fiction books I've read, I think it just takes a, you have to have a proper orientation toward your own life. And then you just pull, you just start pulling stuff from everything. I mean, it, even uh, what Kavath, the character from, uh, King Killer Chronicles. Yeah. Even fiction books, uh, you can just summon pieces of a character to help you. For example, when you're at GDC and you're like, I feel like total loser right now and you don't know who to talk to. And then you think, hey, that one guy Kavath in that book way back when did this thing. I'm going to go ahead and do that. <laughs> like I'm going to pull on his strength and, and use it here. Um, you know, read stuff like uh, Team of Rivals, which is the Abe Lincoln book about how they, how he sort of operated. And yeah, you just, I mean, you take notes and you say, okay, how do I want to, I think just putting yourself in a position where you're always asking the question, is there some, is there a signal here that I can grab onto that can help me improve in some like, way? What would Abe do? Really? Yeah. I mean, seriously, or, or you just realize like, he's a really good storyteller and that seemed to have made a huge difference for him overall. How do people tell stories? And then you go like, watch a YouTube video about yep. it or whatever. Um, you know, how can I do these things better? So I think it's always interesting to me because I, I do, I've read plenty of the self-help and productivity things. Um, but I think there's, there's always a gap for a lot of people, which is that they just read them. And expect that reading is equivalent to they're getting looking benefit. for a secret. Yeah, and the reality is that you still have to do stuff. And and when you realize that that's the case, then every single book you read gets turned into a self help book because Whoa. because it's the case that nearly every book you read has something in it where you could be like, I wonder what if I did blah or what if I tried blah. Right. Um. Could I apply this to my own life? And then you go do a thing. 
And I think the biggest, the big problem I have with people who don't like self-help books is that usually when I ask them like, what, you know, what have you read? First of all, is it the secret? Because it's a garbage one, <laughs> but in general, like, what have you read? And even if they have read one of the same ones that I read, the question is I always have is what did you do afterward? Yeah. Because if you just you read just it, fucking read it, you but it's not even, it's not even <laughs> as simple as that. It's not even as simple as, you know, read it and then apply that stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's also understand that there's nuance there because something like the secret actually does do something good, mm-hmm. which is teaches you to pay attention to things that are good. Right. Correct. Which is enormously valuable just to you as a person. And it makes your life better. Uh, the, and, and so you can read that book. And if you knew that that's what it was doing and that that's why people believe that it works. Right then you could take away this actually very healthy practice and apply it to your life and get something great out of it. Uh, the problem is if you just take it at face value for exactly what it is and what it claims to be, uh, then it can be a net negative instead. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's all about actually having to think about why, you know, why does this stuff do what these people claim that it does? And even the book about habits where, which is a great one, the power of habit, the power of habit. And he digs into all this research about how brains work and all this kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and tries to give a whole bunch of examples and kind of help you think about what these triggers are and all this stuff. But again, it's, it, if you don't think about why, if you just try to like look for recipes that you can follow mm-hmm. and, you know, look for things that you can go do, uh, they might not apply in your life yeah. the way that your life is right now. Uh, and so you actually have to dig way deeper than just you. There's no secret in any of these things, you know, which is part of my thing that I hate the most about the secret is that it, even though there's no secret anywhere, it claims to be the only one, right. you know? Uh, but there, <laughs> the, the fact is there is no secret. There, there's nothing you can just go read and then suddenly now your life has changed because well, yeah, there's one thing you have to do. That's the problem I have with it. I think you, if you start taking an orientation where you say, I'm the one who's responsible for making myself better, then I think that's the only point that you get at where you suddenly, you actually have the capacity to improve from reading a self-help book. Like the, the book doesn't, by it, it is it is not an acting force on you. It's not going to do anything for you just by virtue of you slathering your eyeballs on it. Yeah. And I think that's what always. And the person me. who wrote it is just a person. You know, they yeah, may have they may have found something that helped them in their life mm-hmm. in some way, but they may be completely wrong about why it did. Absolutely. And they therefore will also be completely wrong about how you should approach that same idea but in your weirdly, own life. Even if that's the case, if you think about it and try it, or do you know some variation of it to fit your your circumstance. You can still get great stuff out. You can of learn it. stuff. Yep. And this is why whenever whenever someone's like, "Oh yeah, I stopped reading the book because I just hate that person." We talked about this with Anti Fragile, right? Yeah, guy's kind of a dick. This is what it is. Um, yeah, but what about what? What about his points? But what about his points? And I think this always bothers me because even the secret, like I'm guarantee you, if I read the book, I would get something out of it because I know how to read now. <laughs> you know? Well, I you also know how to evaluate stuff. You know, just do it blindly. But that's right? what I mean. Like yeah. I feel like people kind of skip over that that piece of what reading actually is. It's not yeah. just parsing the information. It's it's evaluating it and then it's, you know, twisting it to whatever your context is and then maybe even testing it after the fact. Yeah. I think, I think there's another layer to this that, that also just kind of gets lost, which is uh, a self-help book. I mean, it, it does actually give you, in some cases, it gives you a recipe. So mm-hmm. something like getting things done or whatever. It's like, yep. yeah. you know, here, just here, like if you want to, if you want to get shit done better with less stress here, just try this thing. This is exactly what I do mm-hmm. just step by step. And it's a process, right? I think, People run into trouble when they are looking for that sort of instant silver bullet where like, if you just read this book, if you just know a thing, then that's going to be what changes it. As opposed to saying, I'm going to now internalize this and change everything about my behavior in perpetuity. I mean, it kind of reminds me of, I was, uh, I was checking out at the, at the grocery store and I walked past this, have you guys ever seen Woman's World magazine? Hmm? Uh, it's this 
crazy magazine that has basically two primary focuses. One is weight loss mm. and the other is pampering yourself. Mm. I'm like these are mutually exclusive <laughs> things, right? Mm-hmm. So like, obviously the point of this magazine is to sell copies by creating demand for people for both, <laughs> for both of those things. Right. Uh, because, because it basically, it, that kind of an angle preys on the, the, uh, notion that you can change everything about your situation in a very short term way. Right. So eat nothing but soup for two weeks and lose 39 pounds. Right. And then go on a cruise and pamper yourself, right? right? Uh, and you're just going to keep bouncing back and forth. And none of these things are really going to work and none of it's going to stick because you're just looking for these short-term changes. Mm-hmm. So, Because yeah, uh, it would be a very boring magazine that said, eat a little bit less for the next five years. Yeah, just a <laughs> right? very, yeah. And like this is, this is known, you know, this is, this is not. Yeah, try to exercise more for the rest of your life. Yeah, right. right. Exercise yeah. slightly more and eat slightly less. That's the one issue of the magazine. Just here's, put that on the cover. You right. never need to sell another. It's like, here's this one crazy sex tip for the next decade and a half. <laughs> yeah. Just pay attention to your partner. <laughs> yep. And have it. Yeah. Just have That's all you got to do. <laughs> yeah. Pretty yeah. good. It's uh, not complicated. Yeah. We wouldn't really. sell any magazines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We might sell a book. Well, actually, we could yeah. sell exactly one magazine. Yeah. <laughs> right. With a whole, bunch, just a whole bunch of life tips. Isn't probably one, couldn't sell isn't it. Isn't one copy of a magazine, if it's only ever just that, a just a book or a pamphlet? I think it is. Yeah. And so, so I think, I mean, I think that when it comes to self-help kinds of things, I think there is, um, there is like, why is there always a need for these books? Like why do, why do mm-hmm. they keep being published and people keep buying them? And it's because people are looking for the, for the secret, right? And because people, there isn't one. Yeah. People At are, the same time. Yeah, people yeah. are looking for some kind of an, a high leverage, low cost thing they can do while keeping everything in their life exactly as it currently is but somehow yield different results, yeah. right? Yeah. The thing to remember, so you're not special. Nobody else has their shit together either. Yep. yep. Nobody has a secret because there isn't one. Mm-hmm. Everybody's anxious in social situations when they don't know people. Yep. There's just- Work is hard. Work is hard. There's just no fucking secret there. Yep. You just got to go out and do stuff. You yep. know? Yeah. So, I mean, as, as an example, um, so I, I think it was 2015, I had, been, I had been sitting at like 170 pounds. For for like six years, and I was like, I want to I want to get stronger, just arbitrarily, because I needed a reason to go to the gym, and I hadn't been able to get a habit that stuck, right? And so and I was like, you know, if I if I put together a ten week weightlifting program with actual goals at the end for like what my body weight might be or whatever, and then I can actually gauge my progress toward that. And since it's on a shorter time frame, uh, then there's an end point. Mm-hmm. But also it's long enough that I have to work at it and I have to establish, I have to establish habits that stick through the whole right. thing. Right. And so I put together a big ass spreadsheet and I tracked it. And Sam, you, you joined me in this. Well, this is right before my transplant. This was right before Sam's transplant. They were yeah. like, you're going to lose 25 pounds. And then Seth was about to start this thing. He's like, what if you gain like, 25 pounds? <laughs> yeah. Before? I was like, I was like, join me in the quest for gains. <laughs> it's literally what we call yeah, that. Right. So I told the, the doctor I was doing it. She was like, what? <laughs> yeah. You're like, yeah, I'm going on the quest for gains. And so it's, so, you know, it's, it's basically research, you know, nutrition and, and like how to just how to manage all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And so then Sam went in, so Sam and I went to the gym and it, you only did it for six weeks, I think. Yeah. Right. And then Sam went into gained 18 pounds. He went to get his transplant and he was like the Hulk. And they yeah. were like, what the fuck happened? He's like, <laughs> just worked really fucking hard for six weeks, yeah. right? But it's not like you don't just like read a thing 
And they're like, do this one weird trick. And it's like, no, you just plan out the whole fucking thing. Well, it's more like sustain this one weird sustain trick. Sustain this very specific lifestyle yeah. Yeah. for a long time. Yeah, it's right? like this one weird trick that doctors hate. It's like, well, they hate it because it's a lie and their patients do stupid things. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I ate soup for a week and now I have a sodium overdose. And yeah. yeah. I mean, and you will, like, I mean, I, my, my, here's my secret to losing weight. Cause I lost 15 pounds recently, mm-hmm. which is to have terrible, terrible gastric reflux. Uh-huh. Probably from eating a fuckload of candy. That doesn't cause reflux. So that's unrelated right, well, because it's actually it, because the sphincter in my gut doesn't work. Okay. So not candy that related. Way, that way is a separate issue. Okay. That way so the candy can, can, can get in there fast. Get in, in there. there. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, it's a, it's a candy dumping system, right? Uh, candy your shit. body is like, wow, we need to get this candy in here faster. <laughs> right. Open it up. <laughs> yeah. So my secret was to have a faulty sphincter so that mm-hmm. food just falls into my stomach. The secret. And acid just comes back out, right? So that that was the first part of my secret. And then the next part was to have that be so unbearable mm-hmm. that I had to have surgery mm-hmm. and have a robot stick its arms into my guts and then tie my stomach in a knot. And doctors loved it. Because doctors you, did love because it. Because you paid them a, a bunch well, to I, get this yeah. fixed. I mean, I paid them a bunch and then the you know, insurance paid the, the rest, rest of the bunch. Insurance hated it. Yeah. <laughs> they doctors did. loved it. That they definitely did. Uh, and then I just couldn't swallow mm-hmm. for weeks. And so all I could eat were things that were liquids, and even that hurt and was very difficult. And as a consequence, I didn't want to eat anything because it hurt a lot to eat. Yeah. And I lost 15 pounds. Mm-hmm. So amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very brave, you know, story of mm-hmm. dedication and working hard. Uh, you know, anyone can do it. So brave. <laughs> so brave. Yeah. All right. Let's hit one really quick question and then we're done. All right. What? Because we've only hit two, so I want to okay, get up. the magic three. All right. This comes from I am Cade. Hello, it's 4:44 a.m. I've been coding for four hours mm. to make a sprite move left and right. It's my first day ever on Game Maker 2. <laughs> yep, After much right. effort, my error was a simple typo. Yep, sounds about How right. often do little mistakes catch you up, and what do you do to prevent them? Uh, most of the time, and nothing. <laughs> yep. But, but the more of them you make, the faster you can yes, correct them. that is true. Because you can identify yeah, it. You're like yeah. a rolling... Catamari ball of error detection. Yeah. Well, it's mostly because you know what it can't be now, you know, because at the beginning, especially you're always positive that something is wrong with the pro with like the, the engine. Right. Because you're perfect. Even though you've been programming for four hours. (laughs) There's no possible (laughs) way. I can imagine how it it starts there. I don't know. I don't know. This fucking program. Yeah. Oh wait, it's doing exactly what I did. The first step is to remember that whatever your program is doing, it is exactly what you told it to do. Right. So, Always remember, you are definitely at fault. Uh, Unless you've been working in that program for 20,000 hours and you know it so fucking well that you yeah. know what its faults are. Right. In which case, which is a bug report. Yeah. Which yeah. is where I'm at. Yeah, because <laughs> we have those. Yeah. Right now, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and then otherwise, it's just, it's just now just practice that understanding when you see something happen, what could possibly cause it because mm-hmm. it allows you to narrow down so quickly where the problem yeah. can be. So as an artist, you have a weird set of uh, other things. So for me... Because it's technical art, so it needs to be able to go into the game. So there's this suite of rules. So I just know them now, mentally. But uh, there's a suite of rules as far as how things are exported that make it optimized for Seth handling them once they get in-game. So, for example, if you're going to export a projectile, something that's going to be like rotated in code, then it needs to be exported pointing to the right. As in, if it's a bullet, you point the shell to the right. That's zero degrees rotation. Right. Uh, in game maker. In game maker. And then if you're going to have a thing that just rotates around its center at all, then you need to have an odd number of pixels in the bounding box so that you there's need- a center pixel from which everything can rotate. And then because we have the ink bot, which is the tool Adam built that automatically exports everything, 
there's like seven different rules for how it actually makes sure that it exports things. And we've come across, I think we've uncovered, I feel like we've uncovered all of them by now. Yeah. Who the fuck knows? Um, <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah. We've uncovered all of them that we've uncovered. So all far. sorts of weird stuff where either it's an Inkscape problem or uh, a transform has been applied to an object that the Inkbot can't untransform and understand. Yeah. It's so, the Inkscape version of a typo. Exactly. And so what happens <laughs> is I'll be looking at my screen and it looks like it should be exporting just fine. Everything looks fine, but it's not. And so my immediate thing, of course, is that the Inkbot's broken because I'm perfect right because you know? i mean yeah. and uh and so this usually program usually like, <laughs> like adam what the fuck i think the ink bot's down because sometimes it dies so he'll go and he's like nope super alive so i'm like shit that means it's my problem now so go look in it uh and oftentimes it'll be something like uh you know something in some sub menu because i had rotated that rectangle into some place everything. it just broke everything mm-hmm. but you can't tell when you rotated a rectangle because you know it's still a rectangle. <laughs> it's still a fucking rectangle. Especially, yeah. Especially if it's a fucking square. Especially if it's a square. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then you have to like do all this back. But now, so this whole idea of you know rolling your 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 error detection methods forward, uh, I think if this happens now, it's I can pare it down usually within like two minutes what the problem is. Yeah, because the ink button does go down like once every three weeks. Yeah. Um, so it's not an unlikely scenario even. Right. Um, but then also that rotation thing happens. Yep. On about the same time scale, and so. Yeah, so you, you kind of just understand the sources of where the problems can be. You've debugged them a bunch of times. You know, you know the quick things to try to just mm-hmm. see if if you make this one change that fixes a common problem. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've I've lost a stupid, stupid amount of time to to typos and to things yeah. where I thought I had done something that I didn't do or where missing semicolon, missing semicolon, yeah. or in JavaScript uh, because they have JavaScript is very weird variable scoping, meaning like where a program can see the value of a thing. Uh, and so there'll just be cases where it looks exactly right. Like you're just reading it. You're like, oh yeah, everything is there because you were missing something somewhere. Then all of a sudden it didn't mean what you thought it did, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so these kinds of little sneaky little fucking things, um, uh, depending on the program language, depending on the engine you're using, depending on just everything, you just got to learn the shit out of that thing yeah. to be able to identify those. So I think you could say that becoming an expert means learning how to become less wrong faster. Yep. That's, yeah, that's really or, or discover your wrongness faster. <laughs> How to recover from wrongness yeah. faster. Yeah. Yeah. Because it doesn't make you wrong less often, I don't think. No. In fact, the, the better you get at something, the faster you move and then the faster you get to make mistakes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the faster you learn. It's an yeah. accelerating process. Yep, right. you know. uh, all right. So that's all the time we have. We'd like to thank our producer, Fat Bard, for making us sound good. Thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord and forums running. If you'd like to get more involved in the Butterscotch community, hop on into our Discord server, which is at discord.gg slash bscotch. We now have 14 million people in there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, give or take. Most of there's, there's a margin of error uh, uh-huh. there. Less with anything. You know, you, just, you can never quite know You never how many can tell. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it says like 240, but I mean. That's just an Is estimate. it accurate? We don't yeah. know. Uh also, if you'd like to adorn your body with Butterscotch merch, you can check out our shop, which is over at shop.bscotch.net. Or if you'd like to send us something, uh, M&Ms, no live animals, mm-hmm. anything like that. Uh, we have a mailbox, so you can send that. Also uh, no dead animals. Yeah, I was going to add that clarity. Just to, no weirdos. animals. Just no quit. animals. Yeah. No, nothing no. that is or was alive. Mm-hmm. Except for M&Ms. Yes. Free range M&Ms. They were alive, right? Yeah, uh, I think so. <laughs> uh, pick them off the M&M tree. So you can find that over at mailbox.bscotch.net. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.